Well, good evening, folks. It feels strange for me to not specifically ask you to turn to a text because things are a little bit different uh, tonight. So let me just let me pray for us first, and uh, we'll we'll continue our time in the Word together. Father, I'm so thankful that you love us faithfully and consistently. There is nothing in our lives that is consistent apart from you. And so we're thankful for your steadfast, unchanging, never failing, never stopping love. And I pray, Father, that we would realize that in new and fresh ways tonight. In light of our failures, in light of our frailties, and in light of our fears. Lord, I pray that tonight that you would meet us and work powerfully in our hearts through the agency of your spirit and through the power of your word. Lord, you know uh, my frailties and my anxieties, and so Lord, I entrust them to you and ask that as your word is proclaimed tonight in a slightly different format, Father, that you would make up for all that is lacking. We pray, Father, that uh, as I've prayed this week, that numerous applications and clear implications would come to our minds as we consider that you are the God who creates. So help us tonight, and we will look to give you glory in all this we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are uh, really beginning uh, beginning our study of a selection of themes that run through the Bible. A few weeks back, I spent a whole sermon introducing the idea behind this, talking about the nature of the scripture, that the Bible is a unified whole, and that it is connected. It has one author, and you see themes that flow throughout of it, throughout it. Uh, and, and I use the example that I want to remind you of tonight of this massive tapestry, uh, an image of, of a tapestry that is so big that it's impossible to take in all at once. There's no way you could stand in front of it and see its details all at one time. And of course, uh, a, t- a tapestry is woven together by individual threads. Threads that go all the way through uh, throughout the, the work of art. And I want you to keep that image of a thread in mind tonight and in the coming weeks uh, and perhaps months as we explore some themes that flow or run throughout the scriptures. We'll begin uh, tonight and in the, in the first several weeks on some of the major, the big themes of the Bible and so that we'll have a strong foundation as we branch off into some more perhaps smaller themes or, or less emphasized themes. And tonight we begin with the theme of creation of creation, the God who creates, which reminds me of a joke that I heard one time of a, uh, a doctor, an engineer, and a politician were arguing as to which of their professions was older. Well, argued the doctor, without a physician, mankind could not have survived, so I'm sure that my doctor, that my physicianship, that my profession is the oldest. Well, no, 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 said the engineer. Before life began, there was complete chaos, and it took an engineer to create some semblance of order from the chaos. So engineering is older. That's bad theology. But, chirped the triumphant politician, who do you think created the chaos? <laughs> Creation and chaos. Creation and chaos both are themes that run throughout the scriptures. 
They certainly appear, I mean, even on the first two lines of the Bible, right? The very first two lines, but it's not only there that they appear. You may be surprised to, to remember that they don't only begin there, but they run throughout and they end all the way in Revelation. Tonight, I'm going to try something I've never done before, which is why I'm a little anxious. I'm trying, so you have to bear with me as I sort out this, this new style for me uh, in this series. But I'm going to try to tell you the whole story of the Bible through the lens of creation. And then we will circle back later and look for some patterns, mainly themes and some practical applications for our lives. And, and rather than starting in Genesis, uh, we're actually going to begin with Christ Jesus. And so you can turn to John chapter 4 or John chapter 1, if you like, a passage you're probably familiar with. We'll begin with Christ. Because you cannot understand Jesus... If you do not understand Jesus as creator. As I read John 1, 1 through 4, just listen to all the creation language that is there. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We see in this gospel that John presents God, he presents Jesus as the creator God. The one who made the world, and the one who made life, and then entered into that world to fix what is wrong. So the story of creation is really all about Jesus. It begins with Jesus, who is the creator of and the source of life. And so he alone has the authority and the ability to be the giver of eternal life. So let's now think in our minds back to Genesis chapter 1 as we tell the story of creation. The Bible begins by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was easy for God. It was easy for him to do this. Eight times in Genesis chapter 1, we are told again and again that God's creative activity came through his word. Not through his hands, not through his mallet, not through a team of engineers, but through his word. And God said, let there be, and there was. From the very beginning, God's power and lordship is on display. God's word, his creative speech, shows that, his, that for him, his creative activity is easy. It's effortless. I think that's one of the main points behind this metaphor of, or this, this idea of God speaking, was that it's effortless for him to create galaxies and giraffes and the human eye and the mosquito. All that is, God created with a word. I think Genesis 1 and 2 presents God as not so much as an architect who's giving detailed instructions, not so much as a builder who is constructing himself, but as a king. God is a king speaking injunctions. He's speaking decrees into his domain, which is all things. He speaks, things happen. 
That's what happens with powerful kings. All that exists, exists solely because God has willed it and commanded it to exist. Genesis 2, of course, gives us some ideas of the types of things that God made for himself. He made the heavens. He made marriage. He made mankind. He made animals. It's all his. He made it. He made it so he can do with it what he pleases. And the text is quite clear. All that God made is good. It's all good. God is a good creator and everything is good just as it should be. The text focuses in on the creation of man and the responsibilities that are given to him. That that man is created in a particular way. He's created with a certain purpose because he's made how, friends? In the image of God. That is really important theological significance. It means that man is given responsibility. He's given dominion. The divine ruler, God, has established man as his many rulers, as vice regents. So man's purpose from the very beginning is established. Your purpose, friend, God has created you for a particular purpose, and that is to image or to reflect or to display what God is like, which means his glory. To show with your life how good and how beautiful he is. The idea is that we would go out into the world and extend God's reign. So we're submitting to God's rule wherever we are. That's how we image God. This is why man exists. To image, to reflect, and to glorify God. His life on earth is for one singular purpose, to glorify God by showing the world what he's like. In fact, if we think about all the Bible, this is why all of creation exists. The heavens tell of the glory of God. All creation exists to show off God's glory. The creation account makes it clear God also creates time. There's this rhythm of morning and evening, of seasons. God creates time and then creates within time, which means that creation is moving. It's moving through history. It's progressing because it has a goal. It has a telos. It has an end or a purpose. But we should also take note, I know we're not reading it, I'm going to have to assume that you've read this account, but we should also take note of how creation is depicted. Genesis 1 and 2 give us an, uh, the picture of creation as the process of creating order out of chaos. It's order out of chaos. God speaks into the void. He orders and he separates, right? He separates light from darkness. He separates land from water. It's by God's design, my friends, that there are boundaries in this world. It is by his design that there is order. Order and boundaries are integrated into the very fabric of creation. Everything that God has made has boundaries because he made it. He tells it how far it can go, what it is to do. He tells it its function. you You cannot fly through the air like a bird because God has given you boundaries. 
God has created it and established it for all creatures, even rocks. Everything has boundaries. Water and land. Even the animals have boundaries in their relationship to human. They are to be under humans. Man has boundaries in his relationship with wife, his wife. And man certainly has boundaries in his relationship with God. God creates boundaries. He separates and then he declares it to be what? Good. Do you have that attitude for God's boundaries in your life? Do you view God's sexual ethic as restrictive? Or the way he instructs us to speak? All of God's boundaries are good. Yet tragically, of all the good creation, man who was designed to fill the earth with God reflectors, God imagers, quickly crosses his boundary. In God's world, whenever a boundary is crossed, judgment follows. All the time. Man rebelled against the one who gave them paradise, and so now God thrusts them out into the garden, out of the garden, into a world that is cursed. Now, because of sin, all of God's creation, their boundaries being crossed all the time. Death encroaches into life and steals those whom we love. Your life will be taken from you. Wives have a desire for their husband. Husbands rule over them. Instead of fruit, the ground produces thorns. That's not God's design. Even wild animals sometimes kill humans. Humans kill humans. The heavens produce tsunamis and wildfires. The whole purpose that God has created the world is now in jeopardy. God's purpose to display his glory is jeopardized by sin. You'll remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, to futility because of sin. You see, creation is frustrated, it is stunted, it is limited in its purpose to display God's glory. It seems, even in Genesis chapter 3, that God's whole purpose for the world seems to be derailed. Yet God mercifully mysteriously, perhaps even, preserves the lives of these little bandits in the garden. He must have some purpose for them yet. But in the Bible, things keep getting worse. As the Bible's story progresses, sin continues, and so judgment continues. In Genesis 6, God said that when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, he said, I will blot out man whom I have created. And then God says these incredible words, I'm sorry that I created them. So God washes the world. He washes off the surface of the earth with a flood. The earth strangely returns back to its pre-creation form. It returns to chaos where water once again covers the deep, where the world is once again formless and void. Yet even in this, we see God, the creator. He creates a new world. He reestablishes the boundaries that are broken down between in judgment. That land and sea, that boundary is lost. God even elects, saves, I would say he even creates a new Adam. 
Yet his name is Noah. I say he's a new Adam because Noah is given the very same commission that Adam was given in the garden. In Genesis chapter 9, once Noah is off the ark, God says, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the covenant that God made with Noah, God even established a covenant of preservation. His covenant with the world and with all creation, even the plants, was that God would not again destroy the world with a flood, which the purpose is not about the flooding. The purpose is that God is willing to tolerate sinfulness for a time. That he will establish seasons, even though we don't deserve even stability in the heavens, he will do that for a time. In spite of man's sinfulness, God will retain some boundaries some order. No more worldwide floods. The seasons will continue. In in God's covenant with Noah, it even says God will even judge animals that kill humans. He's limiting the effect of the curse. He's restraining his wrath. But the problem with this new recreated world is that it had the same problem as the first world. The Bible says that the hearts of men and women had not changed, but were continually evil. As the story progresses, Noah's family is torn apart by sin. Ironic, strangely, his son Ham is cursed. We have another curse already. Then at Babel, a few chapters later, we see man scattered across the face of the earth in God's attempt to slow down our wickedness, to limit our pride. He fractures relationships and frustrates creating the nations, which as we know has produced great violence. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12 where God once again creates and he once again uses his words. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Do you hear the speech of God? Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God speaks to a pagan idolater and he creates a new man. This man who did not know God, God gives him a new name, God gives him a new heart, God gives him faith, and God gives him a massive promise. Since Adam is really bad at fulfilling God's commission, and since Noah is bad at being fruitful and multiplying, God takes matters into his own hands. Oh, I love it when God does that. Because humans are really bad at keeping his commands. God takes matters into his own hands, and he promises to Abraham... I will make you a great nation. A great nation. Instead of cursing, instead of God doing cursing, he actually does blessing. And in fact, he says, not only am I not going to curse you, and not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse you. So God is acting. But the Abrahamic women, right, this promise of a nation requires children. And the women in Abraham's family were barren continually. They failed to conceive on their own. But that's no problem for a God who speaks life into existence. No worries, because it is not a problem to the God who creates. So he creates life and he places it in barren wombs. 
intentionally. And he does it again and again and again. And very soon, they are multiplied. And they are big as a nation, but they're not a nation because you can't be a nation if you're enslaved. Enslaved in Egypt. So God speaks again. This time he speaks through Moses and he delivers his people. Isn't it interesting that Moses was very worried about his speech? Ha ha ha. No problems for God. Not surprisingly, all the plagues of Egypt, if you think about them, they are in some variety of God temporarily suspending boundaries that he's graciously set up in creation. Darkness encroaches upon light. Frogs come out where they are not supposed to be. And then, of course, death. Yet God saves his people and takes them off into the wilderness where he creates again. Before he created Abraham, now he creates Israel. Listen as I read from Exodus 19. Listen to these words carefully. Now therefore, you will indeed obey my, guess, voice, and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Listen to this creative language. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God saved them and created a nation out of them. God creates a nation for himself, and he even promises that he will give them a land, a new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. This new Eden is a place where former slaves can enjoy perpetual Sabbath rest in the presence of God and under God's king. Oh, how I long for that. But as you probably know, the people once again ignore God's boundaries and rebel. Not once, but twice. And in judgment, God allows a whole generation to die off. And so he can effectively recreate another nation, a new nation, with their children. Eventually, God settles them, the people of Israel, in the land. And they enjoy rest for a time under God's king. But that king and his son, the king, and his son, the king, all sinned. And the people sinned again, rejecting God's boundaries for their life. And just like Babel, God scatters them again, this time into exile in the nations where they don't know the language. And things seem bleak. But hope is not lost because God is still speaking. He's speaking through the prophets. And on many occasions, guess what kind of language the prophets use to comfort the people of God? They use the language of creation. They remind Israel that God, the God who creates, the God who creates the world, and the God who created Israel is the God who saves. And sure as the world is, God will keep his promises. As sure as the sun is in the sky, God will remain faithful. I had a hard time picking one passage to demonstrate this. It's all over the prophets. God wants to prove the whole cosmos is his portfolio. It's his resume. It's where you can have your faith renewed. When you look into the stars and you see that they're in the same place that they were last night, God is faithful. And it's not because you're faithful. Because you're not. But he is. 
He's the creator of the ends of the earth. That's why Isaiah 40, in a word of comfort, the Bible says, Do you not know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is specifically the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. And you can't even understand his wisdom. So rest. The creator God is on the throne. God eventually regathers his people out from exile. They're smaller, but they're his people. And they eventually rebuild the temple, but it's empty. God isn't there. They don't really want him. They've got themselves. Perhaps just as bad, God is also silent. No longer does he speak through his prophets, but God withdraws his presence and his powerful creative word. Until amazingly, one day, the creator himself appears. He appears as a man, and just like in Eden, he walks among men. John chapter 1 has many echoes of Genesis 1. I hope that you heard them. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John 1.4 says, in him was life. Where is life? It's in him. In him was life and the life was the light of men. God himself, the source of life, came down to this cosmos of death. He came to dwell. The word himself, the Bible, who the Bible calls and describes as the agent of all creation and the very source of life itself comes through a birth canal. Maybe this explains this lifeness that Jesus has, his propensity to work miracles everywhere he went. He, just, he would see the curse and he would push back on it. Because it's not right. He'd see blindness, you should see. Oh, you're lame, you should get up, right? Oh, you're hungry, here is food. Again and again, God is, we see Jesus pushing back on the curse that infiltrates his creation. He sees a storm, he rebukes it. He says, nature, obey me. And what does it do? Why? God is the creator and Jesus is the creator. We see Jesus calming the storm, healing diseases, making the blind see all demonstrations that Jesus is the creator and the creative power of God. We see Jesus undoing the decreation caused by our sin. And nowhere is this more clearly seen when the source of life speaks to a corpse. Lazarus, come out. And what did that corpse do? That corpse obeyed. Because when Jesus speaks, things happen. God's creative word is irresistible. A short time later, the author of life laid down his life so that he might bring those of us who were dead back to God. And three days later, Jesus himself, also a corpse, rose from the dead, 
proving that he is the source of life. And when he rose from the dead, he ushered in a whole new era. The new creation has begun. Because the one who was dead and yet rose to life, guess what? He can do the same thing for other dead people. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? And you who were dead and your trespasses and sins. Romans 8 says those he called, he spoke out to, he also justified. God is the God, as Romans says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Your sin destroyed you until God spoke and said, live again. And you can't resist him because his call is irresistible. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ because he's the source of life for it is by grace you've been saved. It's not of yourself. You have no creative power. It is by grace. And it's in Jesus because Jesus is the source of life. Those who are united by faith in Christ have access to the life of Christ which is more powerful than a Roman cross. And so yet again, we see God making, creating for himself, this time, a new nation, as we heard last week from Pastor Mark and 1 Peter. We see see God making for himself a new nation, a new Israel, a new kingdom, a new humanity. Just as we heard last week, just like Israel, he has called us to be a kingdom of priests. He has called us to be a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And God is continuing his creative work of redemption and grace. And once the gospel has sufficiently gone forth, once the call of the gospel has gone to all who will respond, God will return and he will judge the earth with fire and consummate his new creation. All evil and all sin, perhaps even some of the names of the people we just prayed for, will be destroyed in fire. And the earth will be cleansed of its sin. The sin that remains in me will be cleansed in death. And God's people will be purified from their wickedness. And we'll be able to dwell with him forever in his holy city. A city that, guess what, he has created for us. That's why the Bible calls them the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. How is the church presented in this text? As a city, as a holy city, the new Jerusalem. The image here is, is, is the image of the Garden of Eden. It's a whole new Eden. It's a whole new creation where humans dwell with God. And they dwell with nature in harmony. 
And there's peace there. And there's shalom because God is there. And not only is he there, but he's on his throne and everyone loves it. We don't rebel against it anymore. We love it and we submit to him. And all of his creation is fully under his dominion. And so he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And friends, you can see, I hope, that the Bible begins and ends and then is wholly linked together by the theme of creation and recreation. You cannot imagine the agony of the preacher who has to leave out hundreds of other passages showing this same beautiful theme. And I hope you can see that there's so many applications, even as I tell this story, that it's almost mind-numbing. My prayer has been that our hearts, as we hear this story, would be on fire, much like the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus burned within them as they heard Jesus tell how all the Old Testament prophesied of him. There are many minor applications we could take from this. We could draw much to learn from the work of God's word. We could see that when God works, he always uses his word. And think about all the implications that that has for your Bible reading. And all the implications it has for the importance of preaching. And all the implications it has for how God intends to grow you and why that game on your phone is hurting you, keeping you from hearing God's voice. Or we could talk, if we had time, about the prominent pattern of promise and fulfillment that flows throughout the story where God is always faithful, though his creatures are not. God speaks promises, and he always fulfills them, no matter how hopeless themes, things seem or no matter how silent God is at the time. Or we could learn with Job how important it is to see God as the all-powerful creator and that should put you in your place so that we do not backtalk God or fear for our future. We must never question his ways or stand over him in judgment. Or we could draw comfort from the lilies. Jesus drew our attention to them, telling the disciples, hey, consider the birds, consider the lilies, consider the flowers, because God created them, and if he created them, he cares for them, and if he created you, aren't you worth more than a sparrow? Be comforted. God made you and cares for you. Or, if we had time, We could consider what this means for the doctrine of salvation. That God creates out of nothing. And his voice is effectual and irresistible. The voice of the void could not reject God's voice in Genesis 1. Those dry bones in the valley in Ezekiel 37 could not say, nope, we'd rather not. The corpse of Lazarus did not argue because those who hear God's voice come to life. We could spend time on all those things. But I'd like to draw your attention to some perhaps larger applications. 
and leave the smaller ones to you. Because the story of creation shows us what God has made the world for. And what God has made you for. A very specific purpose. You do not have a say in this purpose. You do not write your own story. You do not dream dreams that are separate from the Lord's purposes. We don't define our days. The God who creates is Lord of all that he creates. He has the only legitimate claim on all that he has made. That includes your time, that includes your money, it includes your health, it includes your precious children. It's all his. You own nothing. We were made to glorify God. We were made with a purpose to glorify God by reflecting his character, especially in how we submit to him. That's the end of all of the creation. The rocks get it. Why don't you? That's the logic Jesus used. And when we lose sight of this, not only are we missing the purpose of our days, but we will begin to live our lives in useless futility. We will feel the frustration of the thorns, frustrated that the thorn is not fruit. Confused, not understanding why we're not fulfilled outside of the garden. Creatures who rebel against God's purpose in the macro or in the micro will experience the frustration bound up in sin. Your sin will never satisfy you. It will never make you ultimately happy. There's a short-term happiness that fades, but it will leave you feeling empty. Because the whole purpose of the world is to glorify God. He made it all for that. You can't use sex outside of God's design to make you happy if it's outside of his design. You can't use food or money or time. You can't use church to make you happy outside of his design. We submit to him and his ways. And the whole purpose of the world is bound up in humanity's destiny. What I mean by that is that God made us as the pinnacle of his creation. We are the image bearers. We are the only ones who worship. Not animals, not trees. We are the worshipers. And so if man is not redeemed, then all of creation is cheated from fulfilling God's purpose. And God loses that glory. Not that he loses it in his person, but that we fail to glorify him as we ought. And so, in, so Jesus, whom Colossians chapter 1 identifies as the image of the invisible God by whom all things were created, he came to reconcile all things to himself. Why? So that in everything he might be preeminent. The whole point of reconciliation is to put God back on the throne of your heart. And if you follow Christ, that must be your impulse. 
That must be the striving, the driving force behind your actions. That Jesus, the true human, the true image of God, and in his coming, he perfectly imaged God in the way that Adam failed to, and Noah failed to, and Abraham failed to, and David failed to, and Solomon failed to, on and on and on again until we see Jesus. The Word made flesh. The exact representation of God's glory. And Jesus alone fulfilled the true purpose of humanity. Here we have the Creator, who is also the true image of God, and He is also the Redeemer. He is the one who has life. The life that we lost when we were banned from the garden with the tree of life. It's found in Him. And he is restoring all things to himself. And friends, you will find no purpose. You will find no peace until you find all of your identity in him. But I also want to be sure that you see one more clear theme here. It's one that struck me in a new way as I was preparing this. And that's this pattern of order and judgment. We saw on the count of creation that the act of creation is described as God establishing boundaries. That's what creation is. And God tells us, he speaks and he, he tells what matter should exist and he tells it what boundaries it should have. He tells the waves how far they should come. He tells the stars where they should hang, the sun where it should shine, where the mountain goats are to give birth. God establishes all of that. And his order is good. He establishes how humans are to be married and how they're not to be married. He establishes how humans are to parent and how they're to work and how they're to rest. And his order is good. Human sinfulness disrupts this order. Every single sin that you commit, from the smallest act of pride to this greatest act of violence, is always an assault on God's order. On his good creation. It's especially an assault in what you worship. For God did not merely command that man not eat from a certain tree. We know that later God's command is, I am the Lord your God. And you shall have no other gods before me. Friends, whatever we worship... Whatever we give our affection to, whatever makes us the happiest, whatever we obey, if it's something other than God, then we are sinning. And we are taking, forget global warning, we're taking part in destroying the cosmos with sin. Choosing to love ourselves rather than our neighbor. Choosing to build our own kingdom rather than spread God's kingdom. That is sin. And human sinfulness disrupts God's order And it brings judgment. In judgment, we have seen, hopefully you caught this pattern, that God temporarily suspends some of that order. Not all of it, because we would cease to exist, but he temporarily suspends some order. It's in judgment that our bodies rebel and break away from the Creator's design and die. Floods, thorns, relational conflict, blindness, they're all a disruption of God's order, of how he created it to be. And time and time again throughout the Bible, we see that judgment comes from God stepping back, withdrawing his restraint. It's the order that we rebel against. You see this pattern clearly in Romans 1. 
where the scriptures say that God gives people up to their dishonorable passions, which broadly is idolatry. Friends, your sin, my sin, it destroys creation and it creates chaos. Your sin creates chaos in your life. It tears apart God's order. It it, uh, disintegrates and decreates God's world. And so often judgment is simply along these lines. Like the flood, like death, our sin produces a creation reversal. Don't you see? God's word establishes order. And his word is good. So you can trust him with your obedience. You can obey him in the dark. You can trust him with your happiness. Oh, I long that tonight we would leave here with a new sense of the goodness of God's word. To the end that we would obey it and hear it. Friends, if you want a happy life, if you want to be happy, true life is found only in Christ. And submitting to his lordship and his boundaries. And don't you see how this makes sense of all of Christ's work? That sin is transgressing God's boundaries, his order. And so judgment is the suspension of those merciful boundaries. And then Christ's work in redemption is restoring that order. And this can be found only in Christ. By uniting your life to his. And placing him in the center of your life. On the inside of my wedding ring is the inscription Colossians 1.17. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. If sin disintegrates, Christ is the only thing that can restore. He's the only one who can make new. And if you're in the heartache and the chaos of life in a fallen world, and if you're ignoring God's boundaries, building your own rival kingdom, that you can expect nothing more than heartache and chaos unless you come to him. All who are heavy, laden, and weary, and you will find rest, seventh day, Sabbath, eternal rest for your soul. True rest is only found when Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word creates. And so now would you take these words as much as they're faithful to yours and create new faith, fresh faith in our hearts so that we would love, obey, and worship you. Help us as we go into your world, hopeful of the inheritance and the new life that is to come. In your name, amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.